First up, though, we are talking about vaccination. Not bad, eh? <laughs> so that is the sound of a drive-through vaccination center. That's in the Vancouver Coastal Health Authority. But pretty amazing to see that we are already at the point where people are driving up, getting their vaccine, and then waiting to make sure there's no adverse response and getting on their way. Even more impressive, you might say the entire city of Prince Rupert is going to be able to book a COVID-19 vaccine in the next month. Northern Health has decided to give everyone the first dose of the vaccine sooner rather than later. And joining me now to talk a bit more about that is Blair Miro, a Prince Rupert City Councillor. Blair, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, what's the response been like after residents uh, or while residents are learning that they are going to get uh, access to the vaccine much sooner than anticipated? Well, I think, you know, we've been told for months to expect that everyone was going to be vaccinated, you know, first in, in September and the second dose in October. And then we, with one press release yesterday from Northern Health, we're grappling with this new reality and still trying to digest that everyone's going to be vaccinated by April 1st. So I think we're incredibly grateful and thankful to the province for responding so quickly to the evolving situation here on Cane Island. What are things like as far as uh, I know the infection rate in Prince Rupert and, and the nearby area is much higher than it is in the rest of the province. What are things like there right now? Well, I, I think obviously stress and anxiety is a little bit high with some of the highest per capita case counts in the province. We've seen, you know, a significant outbreak in our local long-term care home with 14 deaths, just tragically, of our, our friends and, and loved ones. In Acropolis Manor, we have numerous active exposure advisories in multiple schools and our, our homeless shelters. So I think stresses are high, so this, the timing of this announcement couldn't come at a, at a better time. And what do you think the reason is as far as why are the, the rates so much higher in, in Prince Rupert? Well, I think some people have, have falsely assumed that, that somehow this announcement is rewarding Prince Rupert for bad behavior. And that's absolutely the, the wrong way to look at this. It, it's not the case. When, when the pandemic was first declared, hard to believe almost a, a year ago now for, for British Columbia, Prince Rupert was one of the few, if not the only, municipality to declare a local state of emergency that was subsequently rescinded by the province. So at the time, we were attempting to complement the provincial health orders and respond to the concerns raised by our local physicians and community members, doing things like hoping to extend the 14-day isolation period beyond just international travelers to actually anyone who left Prince Rupert to visit a higher-risk jurisdiction. So we have a lot of I think, unique context in Prince Rupert that the province is responding to, that, you know, we're, we are rural and remote. We're a community on an island with limited healthcare resources that were operating over capacity before the pandemic even began. We have some of the highest rates of poverty and vulnerability indicators in the province, which we know is a contributing risk factor. We have some of the, uh, the second highest proportion of Indigenous residents of any city in Canada other than Winnipeg, who we know have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, and as I'm sure you've probably seen, uh, I think it was in December, Northern Health actually had to announce that they were only able to contact trace for high-risk groups, meaning that if you tested positive, you now had to do your own contact tracing and notifications while also grappling with the virus itself. So for us, we think this, this could not have come at a better time. It's obviously bittersweet that it had to come to this point to get this response from the province, but we're so thankful for their leadership in making this a reality.
I'm glad you brought that up because I have been hearing people use that exact phrase that you said, wondering, well, is this a community we're talking about where people maybe were going around without masks and were uh, ignoring the public health orders? Were they gathering and are they being uh, rewarded for bad behavior? So I'm glad that you clarified that and talked about what is really happening on the ground in Prince Rupert. Uh, Does this mean, though, do you think, uh, do you have any idea what this means for, say, two months, three months down the road as far as are we going to see Prince Rupert kind of come out of this uh, sooner than everywhere else in the province? Well, I mean, to use Dr. Bonnie Henry's language of, you know, the post-pandemic summer, we might actually be able to contemplate what a post-pandemic spring looks like up here. Um, which, which is something that that's really was not expected when when we got this news uh, yesterday. So, it is kind of difficult to project what what the summer is going to look like up here. If the gap between first and second doses, what the current recommendations are, upwards of four months. I mean, we're not looking then until the middle of summer for everyone to get their their second dose. What I'm hoping for is that everyone will not be lulled into a false sense of security or complacency that we need to continue wearing our masks, we need to continue physical distancing, we need to limit our contacts. Even though the first dose is an incredible step forward, the risk still exists. There may be less risk of overwhelming our healthcare system with less critical cases um, and adverse effects, but the risk of transmission is still there. Right. Uh, Do you worry at all about the rollout? We've certainly had issues uh, in Vancouver Coastal Health uh, and some island health uh, communities as well when the first day of booking, only booking for 90 plus and 65 plus uh, Indigenous communities. Uh, Are you worried at all about fast tracking this and the actual uh, actually being able to get it done? Well, I've always been taught that you've got to hope for the best, but plan for the worst. And so there's obviously going to be some logistical difficulty in trying to vaccinate a town of 12,000 people basically within a matter of weeks. Um, The city was happy to to donate space of our our local civic center to make sure that we had not just a large enough venue, but we were able to ensure physical distancing and and be able to get this critical mass of people through. Um, But there's obviously some logistical challenges with keeping the vaccines to the to the low temperatures that they need. So I'm not expecting everything to go perfectly, nor do I think that that's a reasonable expectation. But I do have tremendous faith in the leadership team that's making this all come together so quickly. So uh, I'm really looking forward to see what this rollout looks like in practice. Will it change anything? I know you mentioned uh, off the top, Prince Rupert was one of the first places to stop or try and stop people from from moving around and from spreading the virus. Uh, Once everyone's been vaccinated, and if it goes as planned, and by April 1st, everybody has their first dose, uh, does that change things as far as if somebody shows up in the community who's not part of the community, who isn't a resident that was vaccinated? Are there new concerns there with new spread coming in? I, the concern will always remain until everyone has their second dose across the country. Um, but, but I mean, where we've seen in other cities, you know, tremendous, you know, anti-masking, anti-lockdown protests, the, the majority of Rupertites were really asking their leadership to be much more stringent. And I don't think that's going to change. I don't think that after everyone gets their first dose that we're all suddenly going to, you know, be lulled into a false sense of security. That's exactly the reason that we had virtually zero confirmed cases of community transmission almost right through to the end of 2020. All right. Well, interesting and very exciting for the residents in Prince Rupert. Uh, Blair Moreau, thanks so much for taking some time and talking with us today. Appreciate it. Again, thanks so much for having me.
Thanks for being with us. Yesterday on the program, we were talking about long-term care facilities. Isabel McKenzie, the advocate for seniors in this province, was on Mornings with Simi today uh, talking more about rapid testing being used in long-term care. We know that the first dose of vaccine has been given to people in long-term care. We're now moving to independent living and others uh, who are in those more vulnerable groups. But one of the big questions is when people will get to see their loved ones, when we will go from a system of having one essential visitor to more visitors being allowed into long-term care when things will start opening up again. Yesterday, we talked with Terry Lake, who is the CEO of the BC Care Providers Association, and asked him when that might happen. Well, we've really been trying to convey to the the ministry that, uh, you know, with spring coming, wouldn't that be the perfect opportunity uh, to renew uh, uh, families again and, and reunite families? So, you know, obviously, we can't be married to a particular date. We have to do it when it makes sense. Uh, but uh, it's encouraging to hear Dr. Henry talk about, uh, you know, towards the end of this month, which would be, you know, the start of spring, that we could bring families together again. Let's bring in Shane Woodford. He is a freelance journalist now living in Denmark. Shane, thanks so much for being with us. Always good to come on, Joe. Uh, You saw this or mention of this on social media, and we wanted to talk to you because you responded to that saying that in Denmark, vaccinated seniors do have certain freedoms. So what's happening there? Yeah, we're reaching a point now with vaccinating uh, the most vulnerable population, of course, largely seniors in this country, uh, where we have over 90% who have um, have uh, one inoculation and over 81% that have had both. And so they're at a point now where they're saying, okay, we can start to lift uh, restrictions on visitations as of today, Jill. Uh, 94 out of Denmark's 98 municipalities have lifted visiting restrictions and long-term care homes are called nursing homes here. Uh, and a vaccinated senior can visit with small groups of family. They can visit with friends, again, in small groups without having to wear a mask. Uh, and as long as the people that they're visiting with are low risk, because there is still a concern that vaccinated people can uh, have COVID and transmit it. So somebody who is at a high risk of COVID wouldn't be included in those visitation rights. But essentially, uh, if you're in a senior's care home in Denmark right now and you have one or both shots, then you are good to make uh, get together in person, inside with your friends and family again. Wow, that must be such a huge relief and such a welcome change. Yeah, it's huge here. And to preface that, when, when COVID first hit last year, Jill, they locked down seniors' facilities. As we know, uh, seniors, unfortunately, uh, COVID was claiming elderly lives at a pace that was just unbelievable to us at the time. Uh, here in Denmark, they took that really seriously, and they, they severely locked down seniors' homes uh, to the point where you couldn't even walk onto the grounds, let alone into a building. And what happened last year, Jill, was that they had a situation where the loneliness uh, the isolation uh, was too much for uh, a senior in question who ended up taking their own life. And that opened up a huge debate here about how do we balance the restrictions involved with the COVID pandemic uh, while also realizing that these are people who need to see their friends and family and need to have personal connections. So uh, before vaccinations even began, Joe, they took steps to create visitation spaces. They set up tents outside facilities with screens in them to make them as safe as possible. Uh, in order to get some kind of social activity and some kind of visitation with seniors. But now, like we said, with vaccination being, you know, the lion's share of the seniors' population, they're now moving on into 
seniors who are getting care in their own home and everybody over the age of 80 here in Denmark. Uh, now with that vulnerable population largely protected, uh, a lot of the restrictions that have been in place so far uh, have been lifted. It's just amazing to hear that they'll be able to not only increase the number of essential visitors, but meeting with, with small groups of friends, small groups of families, and not having to wear a mask. Are there any concerns, like you said, we know that, that the virus can still be transmitted, passed on, uh, even if you've had one or two of the doses. We've unfortunately seen that here in BC. Uh, is there any concern this could lead to more people or more transmission? Uh, potentially. We've had situations here in Europe the same. A couple of weeks ago, we had uh, a group of seniors who had been fully vaccinated in a border region of Germany, and uh, they were infected with the UK variant. Uh, this week, there's been about 200 seniors in Finland who tested positive after being vaccinated. So they're not blind to that possibility, and that's why they've sort of said, listen, if you're at high risk of COVID, uh, then you can't go you know, and visit grandpa in his care home because not out of concern for grandpa, but out of concern for you. Uh, Also, there are seniors who, for one reason or another, you know, a small, small segment have not taken the vaccination. Others were sick uh, and were unable to be vaccinated and are just now, as they're kind of coming out of the COVID, uh, thankfully, they're able to kind of enter the vaccination stream. So there's still pockets of seniors in some of these homes who are vulnerable and all of the rules apply to that small group. But uh, if you're vaccinated here in Denmark, you are by and large you're not fully good to go. You can't just go out into the world. You can't meet thousands of people, but you can again have face time with your loved ones, which I imagine must be just a huge relief. Mm-hmm. What about uh, general population as well, as far as vaccination rates and the idea of, of lifting restrictions and really opening things up in the general public there? Yeah, we're at about uh, 10, approaching 10% with first dose inoculations, uh, hovering around 5% for second. Uh, what's happening there, Jill, is in Denmark, they initially said they wanted to get everybody vaccinated by June 27th, but we had some really serious supply chain issues with vaccine doses, as did Canada. Uh, and what the effect here was is they just recently pushed back that deadline into more of the end of July. Um, along with sort of getting the whole country vaccinated, we're now seeing sort of a framework that is materializing about how you can attend events, how you might be able to travel, how you might be able to do things. Uh, and they're working on something called a, uh, it's called a green pass here. And it's basically a coronavirus passport. Uh, and it's an app on your phone. Once it gets up and running, we're told it's coming in May. And for those who are vaccinated, that information will be stored there. For those who are not vaccinated, then your latest uh, corona test information will be stored there. And it's more and more looking like if you want to go to a concert, once those come back, you want to get on an airplane, you want to attend a cultural event, there's going to be a requirement that if you're vaccinated and that's on your your vaccine passport, then you're good to go. Uh, If you're not vaccinated, there'll be rules and requirements around having a negative COVID test I'm not sure if they've set up a timeline. It'd be something along the lines of a negative COVID test, you know, no more than 24, 48 or 72 hours old. Mm-hmm. So we're starting to see now if you have at least a negative test and if you are vaccinated, uh, then in a matter of months, I think we'll start to see a larger part of society and the sort of quote unquote normal things be accessible to you. And do you get the impression that people are okay with that uh, and and with having that information and having to give that information to to do things, to go back to these things that we kind of just took for granted before? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's a tiny group that kind of says, oh, we're concerned, but I mean, it's hard to, you can't compare Denmark and Canada 
on information sharing as an apples to apples. Denmark, uh, Danes by and large, share an extraordinary amount of information. They're extraordinarily digitally literate. Um, you know, it, it's not uncommon here to see a Danish senior pay for their groceries using their cell phone. I mean, they have all sorts of apps and stuff that track their personal information that they don't really think about in the way that you and I might if we were living in North America as part of our, you know, concern about Big Brother watching. Here, there's more a sense of, yeah, we recognize the situation. Yeah, I want to be able to do these things. And yeah, I'm okay with this. Again, there is a smaller segment that's kind of doing what you would expect as far as sort of a counter to that. But uh, those voices are really, really small here compared to perhaps North America. All right. So interesting to hear what's happening there uh, in long-term care and uh, the general population. Shane, thank you so much, and we'll talk to you again soon. Always a pleasure. You stay safe. Well, you've heard the guidelines repeated over and over as it stands right now with the public health orders in BC. Go for a walk with a friend, but make sure it doesn't turn into a social gathering in a park. And a lot of people questioning that, saying it doesn't feel like walking and maybe sitting on a bench or distanced at a picnic table or on lawn chairs is really all that different. And there have been calls for maybe a looking at that rule, uh, along with the other rules, maybe a relaxing of that rule, especially now that the weather is getting a bit warmer. Let's bring in Dr. Jason Kindrachuk, Assistant Professor, Canada Research Chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Do you think there is a big risk or do we have evidence that shows there is a big risk of transmission when people are outside? No, you know what, I think the data pretty conclusively has told us that outdoors, we just don't see a lot of transmission. Now, you know, there, there's always the, you know, the caveat of saying if you had the perfect conditions and you had people in close proximity and you had somebody that was really sick and, you know, would you see transmission? Probably there could be. But I think overwhelmingly, we have just not seen um, massive super spreader events or, or massive transmission events linked to outdoor activities. Uh, so given that, would it not make sense that we, especially now as, as the weather, at least in BC, is getting a bit warmer, that we maybe tell people or, or promote uh, getting outdoors, being safe still, getting outdoors, though, and enjoying the outdoors and, and seeing people? Well, I, I think we're starting to see a shift towards that, right? I mean, first of all, I say that out of a jealousy aspect, I'm stuck in the prairies where it's still prairie prairie winter for, for the next six months. But, uh, you know, I think that we need to do a better job in, in communication and, and take a look back at everything we've learned over the past, you know, 14 months, however long it's been now, and say, okay, what activities can we do safely outside? And, and certainly we've seen some, I think, amount of that occurring more globally. Uh, Dr. Mooj Sebek has been very, uh, I think, outspoken on this um, in, in regards to her posts on, on Twitter about the fact that outdoors, we just don't see a lot of transmission. And I think we, we want to see people from a mental health standpoint and a physical health standpoint, being able to do those activities that they can socially that are still safe, but allow them to kind of get some of, you know, that, uh, you know, that, that need for, for interaction uh, out of their system. Right. And I think, too, and maybe not so much in uh, the prairies where it's been colder than here, but I mean, people in Vancouver and Metro Vancouver kind of go outside all year. We got We had a little bit of snow, not that much. So, so people have been doing this and have been gathering at, at public beaches and parks. And I see people in parks by, by my home quite often. Uh, and so, I mean, one would think from that, if that was what was causing transmission, contact tracing, we would know that and we would know it was a bigger issue. 
Certainly, and, and I think we could also look at you know some of the outdoor events from the fall time in the U.S. So you know certainly looking at you know some of the, the sports events where people were in the stands, even though you know there there were more limited uh, numbers in regards to, uh, to to people that that were participating in that, we didn't see big transmission events. So again, it takes us back to this idea of being it's not no risk, it's it's low risk certainly, um, but but we just have to do it carefully and and kind of understand that there are still boundaries that you know doing those things outdoors can't precipitate suddenly people saying, okay, well, we'll, we'll, let's go spend 10 minutes indoors and, and uh, you know, it's fine. It'll be okay. We've, we've only you know, done this for a few minutes. We have to do it smartly, but I think it can be done, uh, you know, very easily and very safely. Right. Because I think that's been one of the arguments too, with people saying, well, why couldn't I have a couple of people over and we can sit on my back patio or my backyard? And then the idea being, well, all it takes is, is somebody to, to help you bring the dishes inside or to, how, to, to use the washroom if you're at somebody's house. And if somebody say is asymptomatic or carrying the virus, or they are maybe a little bit sick and, and kind of ignored that rule, then it spreads. Well, you've hit the nail on the head, right? So when we think about this idea of transmission, we have to understand that it's, you know, for, for COVID-19, at least, it's not somebody that is necessarily really sick that, that has to be, uh, you know, coughing and sneezing uh, rapidly to be spreading the virus. It's these other situations where we can't pinpoint who is infected when we start to see transmission events, and then that chain starts to, to build up. So again, if we do it smartly and, and do it through a lot of communication, I think it can be done safely. Um, hopefully, public health you know, kind of, I think, catches up across the country to provide, I think, cogent messaging across all jurisdictions. But I think we're seeing the move towards that. Uh, and do you think it's also, uh, like you said, it's not no risk, it's low risk, but it is it also that people then have their own personal, uh, what they're comfortable with? And I know we've talked about it's it's not per, per maybe you, if you're a younger person, that's that even if you get the virus, you're not going to, it's not likely that you're going to get very sick, but it's whether you pass it to your parent or your grandparent. If somebody takes all of those things into account, do you think, is it up to them if they want to put themselves in that situation where they know there is some risk? Yeah, I think we have to get back to this idea of, of saying, okay, we have some personal responsibility for this. And, and certainly we have to look at the you know, the potential situations where we have some flexibility of being able to say what can be done uh, from a safe standpoint that, again, it's not necessarily going to be no risk, but it's going to be low risk. And we put people in the position with all the information that they have possible at their hands to say, here are the things that, that you can do to mitigate any sort of transmission. And, and I think, again, I think it can be done safely. It just has to be done smartly. And so what do you think that looks like? And again, kind of getting back to that, we're not seeing huge transmission in these scenarios. Is it reminding people, uh, don't do this again, if you feel any sickness, uh, don't do this and get close to people maybe that, that are immune compromised? Are, there, are those the things that we need to be uh, still thinking about? Yeah, I think it is. And I think it's providing some, you know, some semblance of what the boundaries look like, right? So, you know, what, what are the activities that, that we can do, um, you know, with, with a mask or without a mask? Or what, what does that distance look like between people that are associating outside and giving people the, the specifics? Because I think it, the unfortunate reality is that there's been a lot of gray area for, for COVID-19 because we don't know everything about the virus. Um, but that has led to a lot of people trying to make interpretations of what some of the messaging has said. And that isn't always easy to do. So if we are able to provide some context and, and some meaningful boundaries, hopefully that will extend out to people and, and again be you know be mind, you know allow people to be mindful of what they're what they're doing, what they're partaking in. Because do you think the the 
backlash, I guess, for lack of a better word, or here we are a year in going into this and it's spring again. We're all remembering where we were last spring. People are tired. Are people just going to do it anyway? Well, I think there's that aspect of it, right? I mean, certainly, listen, in, in Saskatchewan, you know, it's been, uh, you know, we're here for a year, but it's already starting to thaw. And I, you kind of see that that change in people just generally that, oh, it's been a long winter. I just need to get outside. And, and I think there is some aspect of that of people saying, okay, what, what has all the data said? Because we're getting data in real time, minute by minute now, uh, regardless if we're researchers or not. So I think we're, we're making some of those decisions. But if we can make more calculated decisions by, again, having those boundaries, uh, you know, from from you know people that uh, that are high up in public health, and and have some context for what the current data says. That that allows everybody to do things safely. Does it change? Do you think as well? In BC, we have people in long term care have been given first doses. In some cases, they've been given second doses. Once we have the most vulnerable people in independent living, uh, people eighty plus that are living at home. Once those groups have their first shot of vaccine. Does that change things? I think it does to some extent. I mean, the difficulty is, is that when we think about this idea of, of high-risk groups, there's, you know, we want to get protections out, but we also know that the more the virus transmits, the more that we potentially see different variants and different mutations. So there's that aspect that, yes, we want to get those short-term protections, but we also want to limit the ability of the virus to potentially adapt or change any more than it has. So we, we still have to limit transmission, even in those low-risk groups, because they can still get infected. They just may not necessarily get sick. And, and that, I think, is where you know, we still have a lot of questions about what this virus is going to do next. All right. Uh, Jason Kindrachuk, we'll leave it there for today. Appreciate it. And I will, I will stop myself from sending you photos of the daffodils and the other flowers that are uh, throughout <laughs> the city right now. Yes, please do. Otherwise, I'll send pictures of snow. (laughs) All right. Thanks so much. Great to have you back on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, I know a lot of parents are wondering what they will be doing for spring break, how to keep the children occupied, how to stay safe as the pandemic continues. Well, the Burnaby Village Museum will be open and it will be free to the public starting next week for spring break. But there will be some notable differences. And with those changes to here to talk about those is our show contributor, John Jang. Good afternoon, Jill. Spring break officially starts this weekend, and I've been told that spring break is not a vacation if you're a working parent. I wouldn't know that myself, but I assume that's a pretty fair point. Thankfully, families that are looking for safe and fun events are actually in luck, as one of Metro Vancouver's iconic tourist attractions will be open for free to the public all week starting Monday, of course, with some differences due to COVID-19 guidelines. For more, we are now joined by Jane Lemke, the curator for the Burnaby Village Museum. Thanks for giving us some time here today. Happy to be here. Now, as mentioned, uh, the Burnaby Village Museum will be open to the public during spring break. So just get us through uh, that decision to once again reopen to the public, because I'm sure there's a lot of families out there thinking, boy, what are we going to do with our young family during next week for spring break? Well, now they have an option. Yeah, we are very thrilled to be able to to offer this to the community. We haven't been open to the public since last August. So based on some new guidelines and health rules, we're opening from March 15th to March 26th from 11 a.m. until 4.30 p.m. Advanced online registrations are required, but it is free. So for families trying to find something to do with their little ones, please check us out. We have a website, Burnaby Village 
museum.ca, and we are here to welcome people. We're excited to present history to everyone and enjoy some learning together for the first time for us in a while. So it, it's hoping to get back to some a new normal for us. Yeah, definitely. And I understand there's going to be a few changes, of course, because of those COVID-19 guidelines, a, a bit of a mix up from what you might used to do if you go visit the Burnaby Village Museum. Could you just guide us through on what some of those key differences might be? Sure. So one large difference is that the carousel, one of the most popular things that we offer to, to families, is closed along with the gift shop. So this has to do with the fact that it's a 112-year-old carousel and we cannot safely sanitize it between uses. So we are closing that, unfortunately. But otherwise, yes, online advanced registration is required. It's timed entry. So we have a certain amount of people that's allowed on our 10 10 acre outdoor site. And as well, we have a mandatory mask policy for any indoor exhibits. So a lot of our spaces are outside. And for those spaces, it can feel quite normal. We've got lots of room to move around as we have a maximum amount of people that's allowed on site. So for anyone who does come, it'll feel expansive and lots of space for your your, uh, little ones to run around and that'll feel quite normal. And then when you are inside the buildings, the mask policy is mandatory. And we also have increased sanitization and cleaning procedures in place, COVID screening protocols for anyone who comes, and a six feet minimum available between people. So we are set up and we have room to move around, which is nice to be able to offer people a space that doesn't feel so cramped. And, um, you know, we're just hoping that people are able to come and enjoy this free opportunity. I love that because not only does it benefit the families, like I mentioned, but it's also great news for your staff, who I'm sure, even though it might just be a temporary reopening, uh, would appreciate this opportunity to get back into work uh, and do what they love doing. Yeah, we we do have a number of staff that, you know, were, you know, saddened to, to not be able to open for our Christmas, which was um cancelled with with only a day's notice in November. And that was very sad for a lot of us. But, you know, we're always working behind the scenes to be able to do online activities that are available on our website. And we're very active out in the community in ways that we can during COVID. So we're excited that our staff are able to, to get back into interpreting the history and presenting educational curiosity to children and families. And one thing that will be different for anyone who's been here on our site before is the staff are no longer in costume. So our historic costumes are not able to be done during COVID just because of the sharing nature of costuming. So all of our staff will be in red jackets and we'll be here to answer questions and provide some learning opportunities for for families. We'll just have to use our imaginations and pretend that all of these great staffers are going to be dressed up, looking the part as we step back in time. That's what the Village Museum is really all about. The first time I went to the Burnaby Village Museum, it was a part of a school field trip when I was a student at Seaview Elementary in Port Moody. And I think field trips are so great because you get to get out of the school, you're so excited, and the Burnaby Village Museum is one of those field trips that every Lower Mainland student, every Lower Mainland child should experience at least once in their lifetime. So how different is it this year? Because obviously, field trips aren't happening right now. Yeah, your story of of the first time you came is very common. We hear that a lot. If you grew up in the Lower Mainland, you likely began attending our museum through a field trip, which is fantastic, and that is a, a large chunk of our visitors. So we are a seasonal museum, which means we're open to the public free during specific openings, spring break, a big chunk of the summer, and at Christmas. And then in between, we're actually 
a big site for field trips. So in those between phases, we have a large amount of school kids that come and experience our site. At the moment, we're just not able to offer that safely, but it sounds very much like the tide is changing and our staff are getting ready to perhaps offer a digital field trip or possibly even accept people in smaller groups starting in September. So we're looking forward to that as a, an update to you know this phase of COVID. But um, I think we are a site that is a, a, an interesting place for curiosity and exploration. So we, we understand exactly why we pique the interests of young, of young minds. Indeed. And for those that uh, do go and visit the Burnaby Village Museum, you can make a day out of it. Go walk around Deer Lake Park. It's always a a great time. So, uh, you know, you can just enjoy the afternoon and the weather looks like it will be holding out. So I got my fingers crossed for that. Jane, appreciate you giving us some time here today. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be able to promote such a free family activity that is finally able to be offered to the community. All right. Such a great opportunity, especially for parents that might be looking for something to do during spring break.